Well, hi there, and welcome to this latest episode of Listen with Cheryl McKay. If you've listened to me on the radio over the years, or more recently to this podcast, you might have guessed that eating is one of my favorite things. And this time of year, I'm always filled with childhood memories of, say, strawberries, strawberry shortcakes, rhubarb, rhubarb crisp, rhubarb sauce. Of course, lobster dinners, the first lobsters on the East Coast are landed somewhere early in May, and, and the lobster dinners continue for a while after that. Fiddleheads from New Brunswick this time of year or a bit earlier. Those foods rooted in the part of the world where I grew up. Our food cultures are such an important part of who we are, and I guess developing our perspective on the world in many ways. And one of the wonderful things about living these days in Vancouver is that we can enjoy so many food experiences from all around the world. I really appreciate that. My guest on the podcast today is a real advocate, I guess, for food culture. Pailin Dongditnan is a chef, a cookbook author, and the host of a YouTube channel called Pie's Kitchen, which has, oh, about, I don't know, a million seven hundred thousand views. She has over a million regular subscribers. Pai is a, an ambassador, if you will, for Thai cooking, and she's keen to expand North American experiences of Thai cooking beyond what we might normally have in a Thai restaurant. I first talked to Pai Lin about her first book called Hot Thai Kitchen, and I was really excited to have a chance to talk to her again about her latest book. It's called Sabai, 100 Simple Thai Recipes for any day of the week. And before you listen to our conversation, I should let you know it was recorded in the beautiful offices of Random House Appetite in Vancouver, the publishers. That office has the most incredible view. It's all glass on one side and looks toward the North Shore Mountains, across the water. There are trains right behind the office building, though. And so often when I've gone to record there, the trains show up too, as they did the day I went to talk to Pi. Pylin, first of all, I'll say it's really good to see you again, and congratulations on this beautiful new book. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me on. Tell us, tell us about the title. So the title is Sabai, and Sabai is a Thai word that, it's basically a way of life for Thai people. It means to be relaxed, to be comfortable, to be at ease, and you can use it in many contexts. You can use it to refer to your body when you're comfortable, your mind when you're worry-free, or even a chair. You can say a chair is very sabai. It means it's a comfy chair. And the spirit of the book is that the recipes can be cooked sabai sabai, as we say it in Thai. So relaxing, easy, yeah. no stress. No stress, nothing complicated. Everything is doable on a weeknight. And home cooking, too. You talk about that in the introduction, that a lot of these recipes are things that you'd have at home, not mm-hmm. so much in a restaurant or, yeah. or places where you're eating out. Yeah, and that's what I noticed um, with having been in North America for over a decade now, almost 20 years actually, is the the Thai food that people have access to here. It's a very small subset of Thai cuisine. There are things that restaurants have deemed are popular amongst foreigners. There are things that are, you know, if you're going to serve the public in a restaurant, it has to not be too simple, right? So there, there are certain kinds of food. And so there's a whole nother set of dishes that we eat at home all the time, but they never make it to the restaurant, either because, you know, it's too simple, too plain, or restaurants might think it might not be received well by foreigners, so they don't put it on. So those are all things that I didn't 
shy off and I put everything that I feel like is worth making in your home kitchen. Can you give us an example of one of those things that, that wouldn't necessarily appear in a restaurant here, but, but is a, a staple at home? Well, a really easy one is a Thai omelette. So a Thai omelette, I don't think any restaurant would sell here because it's literally just eggs and fish sauce and you fry it and sometimes you put ground pork in it, but that's all it is. And you fry it in lots of oil, it's golden brown and, and delicious. You serve it over rice. That is something that was probably the first thing that I ever cooked. And I say that even though I have no memory of it huh. because it's the first thing that any Thai person ever cooks because it is the easiest thing and it's eaten all the time. It's one of those desperate dishes where you've got nothing else, <laughs> but you've got eggs because everyone always has eggs and you always have fish sauce because every Thai person has fish sauce. And this is something you can make. And another one is a dish called chap chai and it's in English I call it grandma's pork spare ribs stew mm. with lots of vegetables and that is just it's not a looker it's a brown soup with lots of vegetables and it like in a restaurant it's just not really quite it's not impressive right it comes out and nobody goes wow you know it comes out it's like oh okay it's like this brown soup but it is so good it is such a delicious soup and it's something that um, I have all the time at home is that the one that you mentioned that you're not quite old enough to make yet? Yeah, <laughs> that, that is the one. Um, Jap chai is one of those soups that associated with grandmothers. It's something that my grandmother made for me. And every time I make it, I feel older. Like I feel like, oh, this is like such a grandmotherly <laughs> dish. Um, and it's just slow stewing of vegetables. And it's, it's just simple. But the flavors that come out of it is just so comforting. It's interesting you mentioned vegetables. I'm thinking of some of the vegetables that you include here that wouldn't necessarily, like, for example, Brussels sprouts that you mm -hmm. hadn't really encountered until you came to North America, but incorporating them into these flavorings and, and recipes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. And, then, and that's sort of the one struggle that I had coming here was the produce, fish sauce, soy sauce, oyster sauce, all those we can buy here. But they're just vegetables, fresh produce, like some of that it's so much harder to export those, right? So I've had to to sort of become more creative with what vegetables will work and will not work. And, and Brussels sprouts are just like little cabbages, really, but cuter. When you mentioned cabbage too, it made me think of a recipe. I love cabbage. I love oh. eating cabbage. And I just thought, I've never put a, thought of putting fish sauce in. But you've oh. got one recipe in here with cabbage, garlic, and fish sauce. I think that's it. Is there something yeah. else? No, that's it. it. That's its simplest form. I mean, you can put some black pepper on it if you want, but in its simplest form, it is just cabbage, garlic, and fish sauce. Mm. And the flavors that come out of that is, it's mind-boggling how, how, how good such a simple dish can be, especially with cabbage. I feel like cabbage is one of those things, you buy ahead of it, you're stuck with it for three months, right? <laughs> because it, it, just, it just seems to multiply itself every time you chop it up. And we're always trying to find ways to use up ahead of cabbage. And so this side dish is great because it goes with anything. You can sort of make it as your vegetable side dish and then your main can be anything. It doesn't even have to be Thai and then you've got this tasty cabbage to go mm. with it. I've got a few um, vegetable side dishes that are like workhorse in uh -huh. the kitchen because I feel like when we cook, we're thinking like, what is my main, right? What, what am I going to have chicken today? I'm going to have fish today. Like you're thinking protein. And then a lot of times the vegetables end up sort of as an afterthought so to have like a few solid vegetable dishes that you can just go to regardless whatever your main is i think is just really convenient 
I love, too, that you mentioned that when your mom was living in the States for a while, she ended up making papaya salad. She couldn't find papaya at that point. And cabbage came to the rescue. Yeah, and she was ecstatic. And and I don't know where she got the idea. Maybe she was just in the grocery store and was trying to look for firm vegetables. But she tried it and she was just over the moon with how well it turned out. I mean, it's crunchy vegetable that goes so well with this tart, spicy dressing that papaya salad has. And she just kept going on about it for, you know, 20 years. And then <laughs> it was time for me to leave. She remembered, if you ever want papaya salad and you can't find green papaya, cabbage works really well. And she remembered it from all those years. You mentioned your mom and your grandmother. How big an influence were they on your love of cooking, I guess, Pylon? So my mom doesn't actually cook. No, except for papaya salad. Except for papaya (laughs) salad, which she only made because she was over in the States and she had to kind of fend for herself. Mm. But back home, um, we have a live-in cook, a live-in nanny who also cooks, I should say. And so she didn't cook much. But she always supported my love of cooking. So when I was a kid, I started to um, love baking. And in Thailand, we don't have ovens. And she went and bought an oven just so that I can make all these cakes and cookies that I wanted to make. Um, So she was always very supportive. I, I remember I was making a devil's food cake. And the recipe I got was from the side of the cocoa powder container. Uh huh. And I made it and it was great. And she said, you should sell these. The cakes. The cakes. And I said, to who? And she said, oh, I'll sell them to my coworkers. And so she went and got orders from her coworkers and came home and said, so I got an order for 14 Devil's Food Cakes. 14. <laughs> and I thought, okay, well, I better get baking in that small home oven. It was brutal. And that was my first experience into, quote, unquote, commercial cooking like cooking (laughs) to sell people and I was like this is very hard I said mom I think I'm done (laughs) so that was the end of my bakery career but so my mom was always supportive but my grandmother was an inspiration so both my grandmothers actually they love to cook they're one of those grandmas who just cooked in order to show their love Mm. cooked for all their grandchildren like I mean everything they did just revolved around cooking And even though I didn't really learn much in ways of like cooking techniques or anything like that, it was really an inspiration for me to to express love using food. Are either of them still around? Yeah, I have one grandmother. Um, My maternal grandmother is still around and she's 95. Unfortunately, she's too frail to cook Mm. anymore. And so I feel like I've had the last of her cooking. However, I have been working over the past several years to preserve all of the dishes that she has regularly cooked. And so many of those are on my YouTube channel. One of those is in my book, as I mentioned, the the pork rib stew. And it's been... It's been really rewarding to make sure that like everything that I will... All the dishes that I will remember her by... I can recreate. And how did you go about doing that? How did you go about uh, collecting them, I guess? Because I'm sure she didn't have things written down. No, she didn't have things written down, but I've seen her cook them enough Mm -hmm. that I know kind of what goes into them roughly. And 
I am experienced enough of a chef to be able to recreate them. However, are they exactly the way she makes them? No, but that's not really the point for me. The point is for me to make something that will remind me of her. Right. The point is not to make something that's exactly the way she does it, because to be honest, I can make some of those things better than she can, <laughs> right? Like you know, she's not a trained chef or anything, but what I want from it is the memory. And so, as as long as I can like make this thing and think this is a dish my grandma used to make, that's good enough for me. It doesn't have to be exactly like it. I got such a pang when you said that thing about having the last of of her cooking, and I remember that with my own mother when I realized, oh. I'm never gonna have all those 16 things that are the best that she ever, you know, did. It's yeah. it's it's such a moment to realize yeah. that's that's over. It it really is, and um, and I feel like every year I'm a little bit afraid that it'll be the last year that I'll see my mm. grandmother because she's 95. I mean, she's still walking around. She's still as healthy as a 95 year old can be. I think I am at the point of trying to treat every moment that I have with her. As if it were my last, because it could really be. Has she seen your success, your amazing success? Like, does she watch the YouTube channel? She has seen it. I'm not sure she quite understands it, because she'll see the book and then she'll see the videos, and then she'll ask me, "So, what do you do for work?" <laughs> you know, like I, I don't quite think she understands how this translates to making a living for yourself. Um, and then I just tell her, well, I make these videos for work. I, you know, she watches a lot of TV. I don't think she has any understanding of how those TV shows make money or right. how they are able to just kind of keep going. But she doesn't ask too many questions. <laughs> when you said about the cakes and feeling like my commercial baking career is over, when did you come back to cooking? What what brought you back to that, Pilot? Oh, I never left the cooking, but I I didn't. Sell anything to anyone anymore for a while, for a long time. <laughs> I kept cooking, but um, I realized there was a difference between cooking and a difference between cooking to sell. Mm. There's a big difference. And then I got into restaurant work after that, and so I, I fully appreciate the difference now. Um, and in fact, when I was in culinary school, there were people who dropped out. Several of my classmates dropped out because they realized. This is not what I thought cooking was, hmm. because they enjoy cooking. They love cooking for themselves. It's a great hobby. They go into culinary school, and it's like serious, a lot more serious, a lot more high stake, a lot more stressful than I think they expected. And right. they're like, "No, I, 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 I don't want this." You were at culinary school in the states in San in San yeah. Francisco, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. And what what brought you to that one specifically? So prior to that, I wasn't. In Vancouver, and I had started working in in catering and in some restaurants, and then I decided that you know I really want to take this further. I really like this. I'd like to go to school for it, and I was looking for different culinary schools, and I had a desire to go elsewhere because I felt like yeah, I've been in Vancouver for a while. I want to see other places, and then somebody said, "Well, if you're gonna go, you should go to a good food city." Hmm. Because you want your education not to just be in the school, but also be outside, where you're going to eat at restaurants, you experience all all these other things, and that's when I thought, well, what's a good food city? And somebody said, well, either Paris or San Francisco came up, and a few other places. And my dad said, Paris is a no go. 
Um, <laughs> He Why, was. He he was too afraid that because I didn't speak good enough French,、mm. I think he wasn't. He wasn't comfortable with the idea of his daughter just going off to France, you know, on her own. But San Francisco was a safe English-speaking place, and so he was like, "I'm okay with San Francisco." And so I went to San Francisco, and it was just great. It was so amazing, and I'm really, really glad I chose a place that had such a rich cultural environment. Uh huh. Because I did get accepted to the CIA in New York, but the CIA in New York is in uptown New York, in the middle of nowhere, and you're basically trapped in the school,、huh. um, and then you're very far removed from the city, right? So if you want to like go out to eat in a restaurant, it's like a trip.、Oh. So I thought it's a very prestigious school, but that'll be all I have access to. And I felt like、mm, I think there's a lot I can learn from not in school, so I'd rather choose、eh, a school that's not quite as reputable. But then I'll have all these other things that I can learn from. So you immersed yourself then in what the restaurants, the markets, that、yeah. sort of thing. Oh yeah. yeah, I went out to eat. I went to their、um, farmers markets. There were so many good farmers markets, and in California, the produce. I mean, the、oh. variety of stuff that they have is just amazing. And big Asian population, so. I could get every Thai ingredient that I wanted, and that's where I started my YouTube channel. Actually,、really? was in San Francisco, and it was a great place to start because I had access to every ingredient that I wanted. And we were talking about that before we started recording. You were you were early on in this whole YouTube thing. Yeah, I started in two thousand nine. That was before. The word YouTuber existed. I think <laughs> that was not a thing that had been invented yet, and people were just starting to post shows on YouTube. Like YouTube started, and people were using it to share cat videos and you know whatever yeah, yeah. random funny videos. And then around that time, there were starting to be actual shows that people were making for the public, and that was when.、Um, My brother suggested to me that hey, you've always wanted to have a cooking show. You should just do it on YouTube. Now, now you don't have to wait for anyone to approve of you, and put you on TV. You can just do it by yourself. And I got really excited by the idea because I did always want to have a cooking show, and suddenly it was possible. And how did you even know where to start? You know, I actually had several ideas of like what kind of cooking show do I want because I was still I still really love to bake, so like maybe I can have a baking show. And I was in culinary school, which was all French and all you know traditional French cuisine, and I thought maybe I can just do a show on whatever I was learning at school. But I decided to major in Thai cooking because at that point I had been in North America long enough. To have been very frustrated、mm. by the Thai food that's available here, I had been to many Thai restaurants, and none of them came close to the kind of flavors that we would have in Thailand. And I was, I was getting a little just annoyed, and 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 I didn't understand why. I was like, why are the food in Thai restaurants here not the same as the ones in Thailand? And then I decided that that's what I was gonna do. I was gonna have a show where I would make Thai food the way that we make them in Thailand. And why? Why do you think the restaurants here were were not making food that way? I fully understand it now. Yeah.、Um, back then, I didn't understand, but now I do, and I have I have a lot of 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 sympathy and empathy for them. Basically. The people who came to North America, the Thai people who came to North America, started a restaurant 
because it was the only way they knew how to make a living for mm. themselves. They didn't make. They didn't speak good enough English. They couldn't fully integrate themselves into society. So it's like, what can we do? Will we know Thai food so we can make Thai food? Now, because their main goal was not to share Thai food with the world, their main goal was to make money, make a living. They wanted to make sure. Foreigners would be okay with the food, so they started to like. Oh, maybe it's too spicy. Maybe we'll change this down. Maybe we'll make it a little sweeter. So they started modifying the food because they they didn't want to take any risks. On top of that, at the time, ingredients weren't widely available, so they had to make a lot of substitutions. Right, um, and that's those two things. Give us the quote-unquote westernized Thai restaurants that we have today, but because that's the way it started, a lot of restaurants don't want to change. So because that's the expectation of what yes. people are going to eat, right? Yes, yeah. that's the expectation, and so they, even though they can get all of these ingredients now, they don't want to change because we have regular customers who expect these things, and then restaurants breed other restaurateurs. So a lot of um, Thai people who own restaurants have their start. In another restaurant, working as cooks and servers, and then they go off and start their own restaurant. But that's what they know. That's what they learned, and so they take it and they start another one, using the same sort of formula that they learned from their old place. So that's why you see a lot of Thai restaurants that are very similar. Mm-hmm. They have very similar menus. The things are on the menus are the same. Um, that's because they sort of all have the same roots, and they just they they come from one point, so to speak. I am very happy to say that things are much better now. Like we have Thai restaurants that are owned by people who actually are passionate about Thai food, are here to share Thai cuisine with the world, and and they're doing really interesting things. They're doing food that tastes like at home in Thailand. I think we still have quite a ways to go, but there's there's definitely a lot of change coming, and and I'm happy to see that. It's a work in progress. And as you mentioned, a lot more ingredients. Yes, readily available now, and I love how in this book and on the YouTube channel, in fact, you take us on a shopping trip to 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 select some of the best ingredients, and it's so helpful. Yeah, ingredients is everybody's biggest obstacle. Mm-hmm. It really is when when you start cooking Thai food or I think any new cuisine, the ingredients is your biggest like. Hurdle because you read a recipe and it doesn't matter how easy the recipe is. If five of those things you have no idea what they are, you're done. Yeah, you're like I'm not doing this right. <laughs> so my advice for people who are brand new to Thai cooking actually is to not jump right into the recipe section. Take some time to read through the ingredient section, so that when you read a recipe, it doesn't all sound like a foreign language mm-hmm. to you. Right. Um, so. That's why in both of my books, I spend a lot of time on ingredients because that is really the foundation. Like without this, you're you're going nowhere. Right? Right. Like you yeah. say, you get halfway through the recipe and go, uh oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and also to know what substitutions can be made and right. what cannot be made. I was intrigued by, for example, palm sugar, mm-hmm. and I've I've never had palm sugar, but it sounds fantastic. It's quite a whole different flavor altogether. Yeah. Oh, when you get good palm sugar, it's you can eat it straight up like candy. It's <laughs> just, you know, in the same way that maple syrup is a more is a much more flavorful sweetener than mm-hmm. white sugar. That's sort of like palm sugar for us. It's this. The sugar that has a caramelly flavor, a butterscotchy flavor, and a floral aroma. 
palm sugar that we have here in North America is is not the highest quality, and by that I mean they cut it with white sugar. Okay. With quite a lot of white sugar, it's still better. It's still better tasting than straight white sugar. But if you get go to Thailand and get really high quality uh, palm sugar with either no or very little white sugar mixed in, it is a totally different experience. Really. Mm-hmm. So we can't even quite find that here yet. No, not yet. <laughs> so I every time I go to Thailand, I'll buy like a good one, and then I'll keep it and I'll save it only for you know when I'm cooking for guests or something right. like that. <laughs> <laughs> or just to eat straight up. Um, but I mean, in all seriousness, though, whatever you can find at your grocery store is fine. That's fine to use. Like, it's not like you're using, it's not going to taste like real Thai food or anything. Um, because a lot of times palm sugar is used not in not huge quantities. Right. right? So there's a lot of other flavors competing and then it's fine. The only place where it will matter is when you're making desserts right. or anything where the the sugar flavor is the prominent flavor then the better your sugar the better your dish will be i hadn't realized that there was a specific thai soy sauce either mm. yes so soy sauce if you go to any asian grocery store there's a whole aisle dedicated to nothing but soy sauce and that it actually stumps a lot of people because you know people walk in and is, like, it's like all what? i want is some soy sauce and now I'm presented with 50 options. Um, and it really throws people off because they don't know which one to choose. And Thai soy sauce is also very, not, I wouldn't say very different. It tastes distinctly different. Mm-hmm. But for the most part, if you substitute the Kikoman that you can get, it'll be fine. And the other one that struck me was the uh, the fermented soybean sauce too, because yes. I think miso, but mm-hmm. no, it's not quite miso. It's not quite miso, but it's a, a similar idea. So fermented soybean paste uh, in Thai, we call it tau jiao, and it has the same color as miso, but it comes in a bottle. It's more liquid, so we pour it out like a sauce, mm. and it has a slightly different flavor, um, but you can also substitute miso, and your result will be fine. Tom Yum. Mm-hmm. I know Tom Yum. I go to a restaurant, I'll get Tom Yum soup. Mm-hmm. But Tom Yum is so much more, as I've learned in your book. <laughs> yeah, so here, if you go to a restaurant, you would likely be offered two types of Tom Yum at the most. One with shrimp and maybe one with chicken. Right. Um, and in Thailand, you can make Tom Yum with anything. Hmm. You, it, It's just the... the the flavor profile. It's the yeah. Of, it's this of, flavor. Of the right? the yeah. three herbs, lemongrass, galangal, and magrut lime leaves, are what many know as um, kaffir lime leaves, and then the sour and salty of fish sauce and lime juice. So that's really the core of what tom yum is. And then you can take that flavor and apply it to anything. Hmm. Like in the book, I've got a dish um, where it's scallops tom yum. Right. So seared scallops, you know, just seared straight up, nothing fancy. But then you make the sauce that is based in tom yum flavor and then you serve it in this elegant manner and it doesn't really look like Thai food but it really is. Mm. Mm-hmm. You mentioned some of the recipes that surprised you by going viral and there was a, a cabbage a cabbage recipe. I oh, guess it was cabbage, the garlic cabbage, cabbage garlic was cabbage. and it went viral in Thailand. Yeah right? it was it was just bizarre because like it's a cabbage stir fry, you know, like why would anyone be so interested? And this just, at some point in Thailand, it just went viral. I think there was one video where the person said that 
Here is the secret to the most delicious cabbage and fish sauce stir fry you'll ever make. And because it's so simple, I think this is it. Because it's so simple, people are like, oh, come on. Like, what could this technique possibly be, right? And so everybody watched it and they were like, oh, okay, okay. And the technique, which I don't use, by the way, I feel like it was a bit of a too much of a hack. They, they sprinkle the fish sauce around the edges of the wok and let much of the fish sauce sort of sizzle away and evaporate. And then they use the cabbage to wipe the edges of the wok to sort of like mop up whatever is left from the fish sauce. Right. And I thought, you know what? We'll just make cabbage fish sauce. It's fine. <laughs> no need to mop up your wok with the cabbage and do all this fancy trick. Are you surprised by the ones that go viral sometimes? Oh, 100%. Yeah. Uh, I post recipes and I really never know what's going what's gonna to go and what's not going to go, uh, what's not going to become popular. My first viral video was a total surprise. It was agar agar jelly that was made with mango and coconut. So it was two layers. The bottom layer is mango jelly and the top is coconut jelly. And it's this thing that I made up. Okay, it's not an existing dish, and I just thought agar agar jelly is a popular Thai dessert. It's something that I've loved as a kid, and I still love now. And I thought, how can I make this a little more interesting? Oh, let's do it with mangoes. And it just went off the roof, <laughs> and specifically in the Philippines. So apparently people in the Philippines love mango, and apparently the, it just went viral in the Philippines. And the way algorithms work is as soon as a video goes viral, it gets more traction because then now YouTube will show it to more people and then now it's got like three four million views <laughs> of a thing that I just made up and it has since been copied by other people which is a true sign of success yeah, when yeah. other people start copying your <laughs> recipe that completely threw me off because if you are a Thai person agar jelly is the most basic sweet it's like jello oh, it's our jello okay. it's, it's it's like what we would have instead of jello for kids here and so you know totally nothing special right but i guess it people thought it was really interesting i'm so happy that that recipe took off in the way that it did because it's a new ingredient that i think a lot of people don't know about because mm. agar agar jelly it's similar to gelatin but it's a very different texture but a lot of vegans use and vegetarians use it as a vegan substitute ah, for right. gelatin um, and so in the recent years, it's gotten a little more interest as a substitute. And that's something you've been really conscious of, too, because as you mentioned in the book, Thai food is often uh, centered on a protein, whether mm -hmm. it's a fish or a, a chicken or pork, to think of vegetarian and vegan options then, too. Yeah, Thai food is not very vegetarian friendly at all, especially with our liberal use of fish sauce and oyster sauce and all of that stuff. However, another thing that really surprised me is how many vegetarians follow me. And the reason is, even though Thai food is not vegetarian friendly in its natural form, we don't actually eat a ton of meat in general. So for example, a stir fry, it would be meat mixed with a bunch of vegetables so it's easy for a vegetarian person to make that substitute right. we'll just take out the meat and we'll substitute a, a vegan protein of some sort and there's so much spices and herbs that that it still tastes good without that meat so it, it's much harder 
you know, for you to substitute to make a vegan version of a steak dinner or a roast chicken, <laughs> right, right? right? There's nothing else going on. But if it's a curry, well, the chicken is only just one of the many things that's in there. So it's easy to make the substitute. And this is why I think I still have so many vegan followers, even though I rarely make vegan recipes, but because the recipes are workable. Adaptable. Yeah, yeah. adaptable. Is there a fish sauce substitute? I generally just tell people use soy sauce. Mm. It's fine. It's close. It, it doesn't taste the same, but it it's salty. It gives umami. It It's a liquid seasoning, so it'll work in salads and things like that. And it's fine in most cases. Sometimes I'll use a combination of soy sauces. So I'll use soy sauce mixed with what I call Thai seasoning sauce, uh-huh. which is a different kind of soy sauce or Maggi seasoning. A lot right. of people, you can do a combination of soy sauce and Maggi seasoning as a fish sauce substitute. You can buy vegan fish sauce, but I haven't really found a good one that's readily available. You can find one online maybe that has good reviews, but like if you go to an Asian store, nothing there is any good. (laughs) Save yourself the bother. Yeah. (laughs) How often are you doing the videos these days? I'm posting videos once every two weeks. Yeah, and now I'm putting a lot of my energy also in the website. Because uh-huh. before when I started, I only made videos and my website was didn't really have any information other than the recipes themselves. But now I feel like a lot of people want to read. Some people want to read, some people want to watch, yes, right? It right. just depends on what you're in the mood for. And so I want to provide readable information as well. So I'm trying to go back to all my recipes and bulk them up with extra information in text form um, in the same way that I give in my video form. So that's another thing that I'm working on. Yeah. I'm, there's so many recipes. My daughter's been making them. I've been making them. The one I haven't made yet that I'm really looking forward to is that black bean uh, coconut dessert. Oh. I love that. Oh my God. When I got to the end of the book, I was like, yes, a recipe for this. I am so surprised. Did you know about that dish before? I've eaten it, yeah. Really? Yeah, but I've never made it. Where yeah. did you eat it? In, in, a in, in a restaurant. Yeah. I am really surprised that you've had it before because I think... Or a version of it, I guess. Or a version yeah. of it because yeah. I think it's one of those things that people will first think is odd because of the beans in because dessert. it's the beans and dessert and it's like yeah, it's common in asia but it's not common in in the west and not only that it's black beans right like most people like oh red beans people are right, used yeah. to seeing red beans in desserts in buns, in and, buns yeah. and stuff but like black beans and whole ones on rice no less <laughs> right it's like there's so many things that would be new to a lot of people but it is so good and if you think about uh mochi mochi with red bean filling that is the same combination mochi is made from sticky rice yeah and the red beans are inside the sticky rice this is basically deconstructed <laughs> yeah. mochi right like the the beans are whole they're not mashed and the rice is also whole it's not mashed into a dough but it's the same combination and it's just so good mm. and it, it requires a leaf i can't remember the pandan leaf pandan, yeah. yeah um which is basically our vanilla uh-huh. is the analogy that i make it's the one herb that we use in most of our desserts in the same way that vanilla is generally used unless a thing is chocolate flavor you're going to add vanilla or right. something you know um so we use that and and you can buy it frozen or fresh in asian markets but um if you don't use it it'll still be delicious yeah. mm. It's not absolutely necessary. What kind of feedback do you get, Pylon, from from your many readers and viewers? What do you hear from folks? The most common feedback that I get is, 
I never knew I could make Thai food at home. And that's like the best thing because it's really my my goal. It's like people who said I've always been intimidated. Intimidated is a word that comes up a lot. I've always been overwhelmed by all the ingredients and all the stuff. And they will say, "You break it down in a way that makes me feel like it's doable." And I think that's that's the best compliment that I will get because it's really my goal. And I kind of look at myself a bit like a translator. Hmm. Because I, I, at this point, you know, I've spent about half my life in Thailand and half my life in the West. I feel like I have a really good understanding of both perspectives, and I can bridge the gap. Like I, I know how to explain something to a person born and raised in Canada. I know how to explain it to them in a way that they will understand. Right. And I think that there's not. Too many people out there with my unique perspective of having lived in both places for such a long time to be able to make that connection for people. Why is that so important to you? It, it, it like you say, it's been kind of your mission statement for for so long now. I mean, food is a it's a part of our culture, and I feel like up until now, Thai culture, Thai food has been so misunderstood. There's a lot of misconception. There's a lot of bad recipes. There's a lot of stereotypes that is not true, um, and I think it's important just just as a respect to the culture, to the country that that the truth is out there, so to speak. <laughs> But also, somebody just said this the other day. She's a, a follower of mine. She said, "I never liked Thai food until I tried yours." Right, because whatever she was having was this Americanized version, and she didn't think it was any good. And and I just think about the number of people who are out there thinking that they don't like Thai food because it's too sweet, because it's whatever it happens to be. Right. But it's only because they don't like the Thai food that they've had at that particular restaurant. And I think the more I can get the message out there of what real Thai food is like, people can have experience with good Thai food and actually think, oh wow, like this stuff is not only good, but I can do it. I can make it at home. And I want, I want to see more representation of Thai food in the media. I feel like there's been so little, and whatever is out there is not always correct. So, yeah, I think it's just important, like for anybody, like their culture. How their culture is viewed by the world is important. It's mm. a part of our identity. It's a part of our life, and it's it's maddening when you see something that's out there, and that's not that's not what it really is. That's not what your culture is. Right. Hi, Lynn. It's lovely to see you again. Thanks so much for this time. Thank you. This was such a great conversation. Always, always lovely to hear your voice. Uh-huh. It was so great to have a chance to talk to Pailin Dongditnat again, and talk about her new book Sabai and about her life with cooking and with Thai cooking, especially. Her book is delightful. It's filled with all kinds of, as she mentioned, very simple recipes for every day, and she's very clear on the the pantry and the substitutions you can make if things aren't readily available, if ingredients aren't readily available where you are. If you check out her YouTube channel, which is Pailin's Kitchen, you will find one. Wonderful videos of her making various recipes and some tours of grocery stores, helping you identify some of the ingredients that you'll want for those recipes. You can also check out her website, which is filled with again wonderful information and recipes, and that is Hot Thai Kitchen. 
I'm going to be posting another couple of podcasts for July, and then I'll be taking a bit of a break until the fall with Listen with Cheryl McKay. I hope you can join me for the next few and come back again when we resume in September. Take good care of each other.